This is Notoriously Episcopalian. My name is Kelly Hudlow. This is a podcast of sermons and musings all about the Christian faith and especially about being an Episcopalian. On May 28th, I was invited to be the preacher at my friend Drew Brislin's ordination to the transitional diaconate at Canterbury Chapel in Tuscaloosa. May I speak in the name of one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. So last week, I was getting caught up listening to all of the podcasts that I follow. And one of my favorite shows is a show called Radio Lab. It's from New York Public Radio. Some of you might have listened to it. And as I got through the different episodes, I was a couple of weeks behind, and so I finally came upon an episode ominously entitled, The Cataclysm Sentence. The premise of the story where they started was talking about a man named Richard Feynman, a theoretical physicist. In 1961, he was quite well known amongst physicists and was at Caltech. And Caltech had a problem, namely that nobody wanted to study physics. And so they came to their hotshot professor, Feynman, and said, we need you to reinvent how we teach Physics 101. Feynman was a bit reluctant, but he eventually agreed to do it, but he said, I'm only going to do it once, so you better take notes, which led the university to record his classes so that they could see how he restructured the curriculum. When Feynman walked into the classroom on that first day, instead of starting with the history of physics or explaining some complex equation, he began with a question. He asked his students this, if in a certain cataclysm where all of scientific knowledge is to be destroyed, but only one sentence is to be passed down to the next generation of creatures, what should that one sentence say? What is the one sentence that can contain the most information in the least number of words to pass on all of the knowledge that we have? Now, Feynman didn't let his students squirm too long. He gave him what his answer to that question was, which was the atomic theory, that all things are made out of atoms, little particles that move around, that are in perpetual motion, that attract each other when they're some distance apart, but repel being squeezed into one another. It's not the shortest sentence he probably could have come up with, but he was a theoretical physicist, after all. The episode goes on to explore what this cataclysm question and answer might look like in different settings or in different areas of study. They talk to artists and philosophers, but they end the episode talking to a musician, a composer, who set about to answer Feynman's question from a musical perspective with what she called the primordial chord. Now, as you might guess from a name like Primordial Chord, this is not just some simple three or four note chord that you can play on a guitar. She has to sit down at a piano and it's 12 notes that she has pulled from the Western Chromatic Scale 
And to be able to play it, you actually have to have three people sit at the keyboard. Now you might think that a chord like this would sound horrendous and chaotic and a mess. But when they played it, it all blended together and the piano just resonated on and on and on to where it just finally disappeared into silence. Apparently, when you look at the notes on the music staff for this chord, you can begin to see that there's a lot of complicated things going on. You can look and say, oh, well, that's a, a major triad, or that's a tritone interval, or there's a diminished chord. If you know what you're looking for, you can see that in this one chord that there's an infinite number of harmonies that could be made. A whole universe of music could come from these 12 notes and bring forth symphonies and operas and hymns and jazz and blues and bluegrass and hip-hop and even rock and roll, if you so dare. All right there in 12 notes. The seeds to restart our musical tradition if a cataclysm were to occur. On the night before Jesus' crucifixion, he gathered his disciples around the table and he shared bread and wine and spoke and prayed with them. But after all that was done, the disciples did what they tended to do, which is got into an argument about the wrong thing. And Jesus ended that argument by pointing to himself and said, I have come among you as one who serves. Now that word serves is important. It comes from the Greek, from diakonia. It shows up in the New Testament in all sorts of places. Cognates of it are used to describe the ministry of angels, the ministry of Martha when she was too busy to sit down with Jesus, of Phoebe. Paul uses this word to describe his own ministry. And it shows up twice in our reading from Acts today, both in describing the apostles' service to the word, as well as the waiting on of tables that the seven are called to do to ensure that the Greek widows receive a fair portion of the distribution of food. If you maybe could guess, it also happens to be the word where we get the word, the word deacon from. I think it matters that Jesus uses this word because on the last night when he was with his friends, he was giving them something that when the whole world changed, that they would have everything that they needed to start the ministry of Christ church. That that ministry is rooted in and is about service. Service to the word, service to the prophetic word of God, like the prophet Jeremiah. We must trust God to let God put the word into our mouth and into our heart so that we can call the people of God to repentance. This ministry, this, this kernel, this ministry of service is not about making ourselves important or getting honor and praise. Our ministry comes from Jesus, God incarnate, the creator of the universe that humbled himself to be handed over to suffering and death so that death could be destroyed and all creation be reconciled to God. The calling of the seven in Acts 
reminds us that ministry is not just about serving the Word through preaching the Kingdom of God and saying fancy prayers, but it also requires us to go into the world and take action to bring the Kingdom of God into reality in our communities right now by meeting the physical needs of those that are poor and hungry and sick and in prison and by seeking justice in the world now. All of this, all of it finds its way into the examination of a deacon that soon, my dear friend, you will be asked, will you, in the name of Jesus Christ, serve all people, particularly the poor, the weak, the sick, the lonely, Will you study Holy Scripture? Will you let yourself be nourished by them? Will you make Christ and His redemptive love known by your word and example? Will you interpret to the church the needs, concerns, and hopes of the world? And will you also assist bishops and other ministers in the worship and sacraments and the really dangerous line, which is the other duties as a sign? <laughs> but in all of this, you are called into this ministry to let your life and teaching show that show God's people that in serving the helpless for serving Christ Himself. All of that, all of that is in that little bitty word that Jesus used when He says, "I came among you as one who serves, one who is diaconia, one who is a servant." It is wonderful to be here with you tonight, my friend in this place that has formed both of us for ministry. It is always good to come back home to Canterbury Chapel. And if you are anything like me, when I was sitting in a very similar place as you are right now, I hope you are excited, but I also imagine you might be a little anxious. Take a deep breath. It's completely normal. I often explain to people that ask about the role of the deacon in the church that it is a ministry of people that are called to remember what others forget. That can mean that you, as the deacon, remember the gluten-free wafer that's needed for the parishioner to receive communion. And it also means remembering that our worship isn't just about music and prayers, but it's about equipping us to go into the world to bring God's abundance, God's grace, God's love, God's kingdom to the world. So I'm here today as a deacon, perhaps to preemptively remind you of some things that I don't think you should forget as you begin this part of your ministry. I want you to remember that since your baptism, you have already been doing ministry. Today, yes, you're going to be ordained and you will take on this particular ministry and this beautiful and broken and sacred mystery that we call the church. You will have the privilege of serving the people of God to take part in so many holy moments, some that will make you laugh and others that will break your heart. I want you to remember to laugh when it's time to laugh. And I want you to remember to let your heart be broken. There will be days that this ministry may seem like too much. And on those days, I want you to remember that you are not alone. That you are taking part in Christ's ministry. And Christ is always present through the grace of the Holy Spirit. And let the whole people of God join you in this ministry. So on those days, 
if it seems too heavy, remember to share the burden a little while. Your ministry will change over the years, not just because you will be ordained a priest in a few months, but it will be changed by the people that you serve in your churches and in your community. You will continue to be shaped and formed by the people of God, so remember to let yourself be formed. That you can always be grounded in this understanding of ministry as service that has all the notes that you need for any symphony of ministry to and with the people of God that you serve. I want you to remember to love the people you serve, even if you don't agree with them, especially if you don't agree with them, but also to remember to let them love you too. It's that love, that love of Christ that we share in community that gives us the ability to call each other into repentance and to find reconciliation. I want you to remember that all that we do here in the church, the fancy clothes, the beautiful music, the prayers, doesn't mean a whole lot unless we connect it to the world outside of our doors. That the kingdom of God is already here and we must remember to do the work of changing the world. Perhaps above all, I want you to remember to hope. Sometimes it seems like hope is the first thing that we forget. It's so easy to push it to the side and say that it is not realistic. It's so easy in the brokenness of the world to forget that we are called to be a people of hope. So remind yourself and all of us that there is power in hope. So don't let us forget that. My prayer for you today, my friend, as you enter into this next part of your ministry, is that you remember to live boldly in the hope of Christ. And as you begin your ministry, I pray that the wisdom of God guides you, that the love of God transforms you every day, and that the grace of God empowers you to be Christ's hands and heart in this broken world because we need it. Amen.